We could be together. This summer, our message series is on finding your way, how God guides through the maze. In other words, how do we know God's will for our lives? How do we know guidance? How do we receive guidance from God? And last week, I talked about how the Bible emphasizes most is our need to gain a heart of wisdom. That's what it says in Psalm 90, verse 12. And that's particularly important today as we're going to talk about how to make good, godly decisions. So let me get started by reading two passages about wisdom. First from the Old Testament, the wisdom of King Solomon, from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Solomon writes, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure... Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then from the New Testament book of James, chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word to our living of it in these days. Amen. I wish I had had one of these earlier this week. You've seen something like this before. I'm sure the old magic eight ball. You have to ask it a yes or no question. You shake it up a little bit and then the answer appears in the window. Answers like, well, never, or you can count on it, or not yet, or maybe, or I'll get back to you. And what I really need is sort of a magic eight ball that I can carry around with me so that when I'm faced with you know, personal and professional decisions, I can just ask it, what am I supposed to do in this particular situation? How should I respond to this person? What's the right thing to do, the right way to handle this particular circumstance? I had a lot of tough and confusing situations this week. Maybe you did too. It would have made life so much easier If God would only give me some divine magic eight ball that I could just whip out every time I'm faced with a tough or complicated or high pressure decision. You know what I mean. It would just take all the weight off our shoulders, all the responsibility of trying to make the right decision. And we do the right thing all the time. Well, don't hold your breath. We know that's not how life works and that's not how God gives guidance or how he reveals his will To us. So, what are we to do? We are faced with decisions big and small all day long. One of the characteristics of our modern, affluent, technology driven culture is, and it's different from other generations and other places in the world, is that we have so many choices and so many decisions to make every day. Our grandparents didn't have the the myriad of choices and decisions that you and I have to make today. I mean, they had three TV channels. To choose from. And now we've got six or seven hundred TV channels. I mean, it's just too much. We are overwhelmed with options. In his book, The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz describes just a trip to the local grocery store where he found 285 varieties of cookies, 13 different sports drinks, 85 different kids' boxes of juice, 75 different iced teas, 95 varieties of pretzels and chips, 80 different pain relievers. 360 types of shampoo, 64 brands of barbecue sauce, 
and 22 types of frozen waffles. I mean, and on and on, it just gets dizzy after a while. And that's why they say consumers are now sticking just with things that they already know. We simply don't have the time or the energy to make all these new choices every time we go to the supermarket. Even if it costs more, we'll stick with what we know. It's too confusing. A missionary who came back to the U.S. uh, once said that the hardest thing for him in re-entering American culture was going to the salad bar. He couldn't cope with all the choices of salad dressings. He said in frustration, don't make me choose from seven different kinds of ranch dressing. And we all experience this kind of decision overload in so many areas of life. Just think of the thousands of colleges or universities available to graduating high school students. It's overwhelming. And facing this endless stream of decisions can result in feelings of great anxiety among people. So much so that people just start to, start to shut down, kind of put their heads in the sand because we just can't face all those decisions. Part of our struggle is that with all those choices, all those options, we can't keep thinking about what we might see as greener grass on the other side of the fence, wondering what could be if I made a different decision about something or someone, because decisions force us to take a a fork in the road. The word decide comes from a Latin word which means to cut off. And that explains why decisions are so hard. We can't stand the thought of cutting off other options. So making a choice can feel worse than no choice at all, because if we choose A, we might have the sting of not choosing B Or C, there's a lot of buyer's remorse, people wondering, you know, did I settle for second best when I made that decision? If I make this decision, am I making a mistake? And that's why I think there are a lot of people these days who are just kind of aimless in life, who have difficulty being decisive or find it hard to make any kind of commitment, particularly in relationships. There are too many options, too many decisions, and that leads to so much self-doubt. And self-doubt is paralyzing. And so we need to find confidence in God's guidance for our lives. You know, the way God reveals his will to us has, has really changed from Old Testament times to the new. Bruce Waltke in his book, Finding the Will of God, describes six different ways people sought the will of God in the Old Testament. The first way people were guided was through the words of the prophets. The prophets. A prophet was someone who spoke a direct word from God to the people. Their words carried the same weight and the full authority of Yahweh. Like in Judges 4, where the prophet Deborah spoke for God and then led the people of Israel into battle. A third of the Old Testament is the written down words of these great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah. They literally spoke for God So people got a very clear understanding of exactly what God wanted them to do. They didn't always follow the word of the prophets, but they knew exactly what God was saying. And that's why God commanded that if anyone claimed to speak as a prophet for God, and that person's words were not, those words should be put to the test to find out whether or not they're true. Because if a person is lying, then they're not really a prophet. And false prophets were a cancer to ancient Israel and led many people astray, away from the will of God. 
So God took that very seriously. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 13, the punishment for being a false prophet was death. It was serious business. Claiming to be a prophet of God was serious business. And that's why I think it's important to be careful today when people say, well, God told me. God told me. That's claiming that you received a direct word from God. And and how can anybody argue with you about that? If you're claiming that kind of direct revelation from God, I think it's much better to say, you know, I think God is leading me. The second way people sought guidance from God in the Old Testament was through this thing that we don't really understand too much called the Urim and Thummim. I cannot say that word. It's got too many M's in it. And no one's really sure what those were, but they're described in Exodus 28. Some say they were two jewels or two stones, one white and one black, used by the ancient priests of Israel to make decisions, to make yes or no decisions, answers to specific questions. It's the only form of this kind of divination that God allowed in the Old Testament. Their use isn't described much in the Bible at all, and it kind of faded away by the time Israel was ruled by the kings. In fact, it's only mentioned once about Israel after they go into exile. But nobody really understands too much what the Urman and Thummim was, except that it was exclusively used by the priests. Now, the third way of seeking guidance was through the use of sacred lots. Casting lots or drawing straws was used when people were being picked particularly for some kind of a task, or God was trying to outline a particular group that he wanted to do something. Joshua did this when he divided up the land of Israel among the Jewish tribes in Joshua 18. And so drawing lots wasn't really used very much in the Bible. And the final time casting lots is mentioned is in the book of Acts, chapter 1, when the disciples needed to choose someone to replace the traitor Judas, who had killed himself. And the lot fell to a man named Matthias. After Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, drawing lots is never mentioned again. And that's key, and we'll be talking about that a little bit more in a minute. The fourth way of seeking guidance was through dreams. There were a lot of dreamers in the Old Testament, like Joshua, who actually got into trouble because he told his brothers about the dreams that God had gave him, how he was going to rule over them in Genesis 37. They didn't like that too much. In the New Testament, we see the Magi warned in a dream to avoid King Herod on the return trip from seeing the baby Jesus. The thing about dreams, though, is that they always require some kind of of interpretation. I mean, Daniel was good at that. That was his unique gift. But interpreting dreams can be pretty subjective, and I think that's true today, too, though I do think God sometimes does give guidance through our dreams. Relying on dreams to get guidance, it's not a very good idea. The fifth way God guided was by miraculous signs, when God did something spectacular in order to communicate his will. When he set fire from heaven in Judges 13 or the burning bush to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. But people were never instructed to try and get guidance from God through seeking these kinds of dramatic signs. God just did it when God chose to do it. In fact, one bad example is Gideon in Judges chapter 6 where he tests God three times. Remember the story about the fleece that's either supposed to have dew on it or not have dew on it, depending. He goes back three, three times trying to get this sign from God because each time he's not very sure and the sign doesn't really convince him, so he has to do it again. 
But it's obvious that putting out this kind of a fleece and testing God for some kind of a sign is not a godly thing to do. God kind of uh, um, accepted his lack of faith and gave him the sign he was looking for, but it was really kind of a lazy person's way to try and figure out God's will. Well, the sixth way God gave guidance was through angelic visitation, an actual encounter with God through his angels. And we see a lot of that in the Old Testament with Elijah and David and others. But in terms of giving specific guidance, the only time we see this in the New Testament is with the shepherds at Christmas. We don't really see angelic visitation for guidance anywhere else in the New Testament. So the two key things I want us to remember about how gave guidance in the past for decisions are this. First, none of these methods described were really available to your average ordinary Joe for the daily decisions of life. They were all about major events in the life of the nation of Israel, events that God was directing and shaping in order to fulfill his plan for the nation of Israel. All of these guidance tools were available to only a small circle of people, usually the leaders or the priests, not to the whole of Israel. And second, in the New Testament, most of these methods either disappear or shrink in importance after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The main point is that after Pentecost, every believer, every believer now has a direct connection with the God of salvation through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So there's no need for these special methods or signs. There is still a role, I think, for dreams and for prophets in the New Testament. But they are definitely not the norm. And we're never encouraged or commanded to seek any of these methods of finding God's will on this side of Pentecost. Never a hint that we should pursue or seek any of those behaviors that I described. The clear emphasis is on walking in the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, and then acting in wisdom. What Jesus promised was an internal guidance system, an internal guidance system called the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, a helper, to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And down to verse 26. But when the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Again in John 16, 13, he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus never taught the disciples, to seek God's will as people did in the Old Testament. Never taught them to look for signs about finding God's will. In fact, the only time he mentions signs is in terms of the things that would signal the end and the the second coming. But he promises the comforter, the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would teach us all things and bring to our minds all things that Jesus wants us to know. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit enlightens. The Spirit regenerates in John 5. The Spirit sanctifies in Galatians 5. The Spirit transforms 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Spirit gives us what we need to serve the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so for us, what we need to do is to learn to rely on guidance from God's Word and God's Spirit working with our experience to help us make wise, godly decisions, to build up this storehouse of wisdom so that we can make good decisions. Now, I know people are hoping for magic solutions when it comes to their life guidance issues. But generally speaking, Christ works in you and in me through the Word of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, so that we can grow in wisdom and learn from life experiences to develop the kind of spiritual and emotional maturity He wants for us, and to seek to obey what God reveals through His Word and through His Spirit. And friends, that's how God guides. This is the same message, really, that we find in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was God's wisdom guide for ordinary people. God's wisdom is what we need to live a godly life. Wisdom is living life God's way. Wisdom is doing as God's commands. And in Proverbs, foolishness is ignoring or flaunting God's commands. So when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about more than you know, little quotations that you put up on your refrigerator. We're talking about a profoundly Christ-centered approach to life, a, a disciplined life that is obedient to what God has already revealed in Scripture. And then using that as the basis, the foundation, for things that aren't clearly articulated in the Bible. As we grow in relationship with Christ, we grow in this wisdom for life. God does not tell us the future. And God does not expect us to figure it all out. When we don't know which way to turn, when we're faced with tough decisions, God doesn't expect us to kind of grope in the dark for some hidden will or direction. He expects us to trust in Him and to be wise and to go forward making the best decisions we possibly can. Proverbs 2 says we should long for this kind of life because we will save ourselves a boatload of grief and regret and pain when we learn to live according to God's wisdom. And the message of the New Testament is the same. There's not one verse in the New Testament that talks about divining the will of God. But there's a lot of emphasis on wisdom, especially throughout the book of James. Go back and read the whole book. Because for James, wisdom is more than just uh, just guidance. He's referring really to a way of life that reveals a person's true character. It's the Word of God with the Spirit of God that gives us guidance. What kind of guidance? Well, for a lot of different things. For moral decisions, certainly. If someone is struggling with a moral decision like, well, should I leave my spouse for my high school sweetheart that I just reconnected with on Facebook? Well, the answer is no. I mean, it's clear. The Bible takes care of about 90% of all our moral decisions pretty clearly. There's clear moral guidance in Scripture already. Should I cheat? Should I steal? Should I lie? Should I gossip? Well, no. Should I forgive? Well, yes. Should I do the loving thing? Or should I seek revenge? For all those kinds of moral decisions, guidance is already clearly given in God's Word. And so it's really a question of obedience, not guidance. The Word of God also gives guidance for our attitudes and our reactions when we're faced with a variety of situations. Should I be thankful 
when I'm faced with tough times? Well, God says yes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Should I be anxious? Should I be worried? Well, God says no. You know, they say that anxiety is just experiencing the pain of a failure before it ever happens. And Jesus said in the Sermon on on the Mount, seek God's kingdom first and don't worry about the rest. Seek first and don't worry. Don't stress. He'll watch over you. Seek him and trust him and then go ahead and make your decisions in the best way possible. And don't worry. He'll watch over your decisions. After moral decisions and attitude decisions, there are all those non-moral decisions. And these are usually things that are what occupy our thoughts. Should I do this or that? Should I live in New Jersey or live in Minnesota? Should I take this job or go to this school? We're faced with all kinds of non-moral decisions all the time. Decisions where there might not be any direct application from Scripture. The Bible is not going to tell you who to marry. It's not going to tell you what house to buy. The Bible gives wisdom about some of those decisions. The wisdom in God's Word does give guidance, but it's not going to give you the specific magic eight ball answer. Paul warns against marrying a non-Christian in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but you can. It goes against God's wisdom, but you can. And this is the area where a lot of deceit comes in. Jeremiah once said that the heart is deceitful above all things. And oftentimes, it's in the non-moral areas where we say we want to follow God's leading. And a lot of times, people just, quite frankly, end up doing what they wanted to do from the beginning. I once worked with a young guy who was a recent college grad. His name was Scott. Scott came to work with me, and he just was desperate to buy a new car. He had in his mind this little Suzuki 4x4 open top with a roll bar kind of Jeep because he wanted to look like a surfer. I mean, we were in the middle of Pennsylvania, but he, just, he could just taste this car so badly. And not only was it uh, that he didn't have any money to buy this thing, but also the car that he wanted just had this terrible safety record, especially for tipping over in fast turns. But we want what we want when we want it. We find some way to justify it. There's no specific command in Scripture about what kind of car to drive, but there is financial advice throughout Scripture. I tried to say to him, better to buy a used car, you know, a couple, you know, he was really sure God wanted him to buy this Jeep. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. He came to me advice. I told him what I thought. No, he prayed about it for about a minute. And then he did what he wanted to do. He bought that little Jeep, ended up rolling it over and within six months. His insurance went through the roof. He couldn't afford to keep it. He had to sell it at a loss, and he paid for it for years to come. We don't have to listen to God's wisdom, but then we should be very prepared to pay the consequences. You know, that's why we, through our caring uh, ministries, you know, teach a whole class on financial wisdom that really is, there's so much wisdom in Scripture about all those things that we really need to take advantage of those opportunities. Because we want what we want when we want it, and then people tend to justify their decisions. I rarely hear people making the decision that calls for greater sacrifice. Rarely. And isn't that kind of telling when it comes to really seeking what God might ask us to do. 
So the key thing to ask when facing these non-moral decisions is, are my motives right? Am I being obedient to God in other areas of my life? Can I really do this all to the glory of God? Or is it just something that I want anyway? Can I do this in, in accordance with the wisdom of Scripture and the advice of solid, mature believers? God is not giving us a magic eight ball, but he is a good God. And he gives us brains that we're supposed to use. He shows us the way of obedience. And then he invites us to take risks for him. I believe God has a plan for our lives. The problem is we think he's going to tell us what that is ahead of time. We think we need to know what that plan is before it unfolds. We think we need to know every step of the way ahead of time. But obsessing over finding God's will really isn't healthy for Christians. The better way is Jesus' way. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then trust that he will take care of your needs. Even before we know what what they are. Or even before we know where we're going. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't know what lies ahead tomorrow. But we do know huge portions of what your will for us is. To trust you. To lean close into you. To obey the commands that are already clearly outlined for us in Scripture. We don't need magic answers, Lord. We need obedient hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us honesty as we look at our Desires, when we look at all the competing interests that we have in our hearts and the ways that we justify things and try to make them sound so spiritual or godly. Lord, clear all that away so that we can see you and seek you and then go ahead and decide. We thank you now. In your name we do pray. Amen.